front of you, but we will be in the third chapter of Acts, and we should hopefully prayerfully get to around verse 13 this morning. Now let me remind you as you guys make your way to Acts chapter 3 where we were last week as we saw the birth of the early church uh, there on Pentecost. So much as the law was given and we saw the birth of Israel uh, at the day of Pentecost in Exodus chapter 19, fast forward to Acts chapter 2 and what we find is the birth of the early church on this same day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is actually given there to the church. And as the Spirit is given, the church is then also given uh, these pillars, which still to this day apply very much to us. And so what we find is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that as the church was birthed, that they continued uh, steadfastly in these four things, the first being the apostles' doctrine or the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, Paul would go on in Acts 20 to say that he has not, Uh, stop to teach the whole counsel of God. So Paul was determined there in Ephesus to actually teach the entirety of the Old Testament, which is why uh, to this day we still strive to teach the entire counsel of God, not just uh, a little bit of it. Uh, What we like to joke is is to say that uh, sermonettes are for Christianettes. We'd like the whole counsel to be given so you can be a whole Christian. Now, uh, the second piece is in a fellowship. So as we just mentioned, a chili supper upcoming, an opportunity for us to just enjoy each other's company, to spend time around one another, iron sharpening iron. As we fellowship together as a body, we grow as a body. Uh, Thirdly, then, is the breaking of bread, and this is specifically referring to communion, as we have an opportunity to come together and observe what Christ did for us, his death, his burial, his resurrection, him giving himself as the atoning sacrifice for each and every one of us. And so we, we take an opportunity monthly, the first Sunday of every month, to just observe communion and what he did on our behalf. And then fourthly, but not least, uh, prayer. That, that, that uh, what Jesus said of his house is that he desired his house to be a house of prayer, not a house of Miracles, not a house of teaching, but specifically a house of prayer. Not that those other things aren't great, not that they're not wonderful, but specifically the Lord wants us to come together corporately and pray. And there is something that happens as we pray together corporately, that the, that the heart of God is actually moved as his children come together. That's why, as Jesus says in mean, that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there also. He is literally present in the room, ready, accountable to, to move on our behalf as we gather together. And so this is the foundational elements that were there as the early church began in Acts chapter 2. Now, what we found as we studied through Jesus' ministry in the gospel according to Matthew is that as Jesus came in Matthew 4 and he taught that the teaching preceded any of the miracles, that he first came and taught them and then the miracles followed after that. And what we're going to find today is the first miracle recorded in Acts chapter 3 after the first teaching recorded in Acts chapter 2. So as uh, Jesus told them, look, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and you're going to be able to go and do the things that I was able to do. And what we find is here's the Apostle Peter. He is able to teach after the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He gives his first evangelical message and amazingly 3,000 people come to know the Lord that day. Now after that, What we find in uh, Acts chapter 3 is now the first miracle that's going to be recorded. But the miracle wasn't the thing. The teaching was the thing. The miracle simply validated the teaching. That's important to note. 
that even for Jesus, the miracles were all in place so that they would understand that the teaching was true and real and important for them. He was looking for actual healing for them. So the miracle validated what the teacher was teaching. Now, what we're also going to find at the end of uh, this section of Acts is that the first opposition is found as well. So isn't it amazing that the first miracle happens, the first teaching happens, and then almost immediately uh, opposition takes place. But opposition in this place actually gives an opportunity for instruction. Understand that, that as God works in your life and you have an opportunity to share with others that as opposition arises, it's not uh, all just to beat you down or to hold you down, but the opposition is actually a place where instruction, where real conversation can take place in the middle of that. And so the early church begins, as Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 1, that he would give the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could be witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is essentially the outline as we study through the, the book of Acts. That we're going to see it begin in Jerusalem, spread then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so we're beginning here in Jerusalem. But as we see this first miracle getting ready to take place that we're going to read through this morning, I want you to note a few things in the lives of Peter and John. Is that they had uh, these five characteristics that were exhibited in their lives. Um, they had consistency, they had sensitivity, they had flexibility, they had authority, and then finally, but not last, they had humility. And so we're going to look at each of these characteristics as we study through these verses this morning. So begin with me in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. And now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And so they go to the temple there in Jerusalem during this hour of prayer, the ninth hour specifically. So in the Jewish day, it would begin at 6 a.m. That's the first hour. So if you fast forward to the ninth hour, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I think this is interesting because the evening sacrifices actually took place at 2.30 in the afternoon. So for Peter and John, they head to the temple. Uh, they, they do this uh, with consistency, by the way. They didn't wake up in the morning and go, you know what, Pete? I think it'd be a good idea to go to a prayer meeting. I think I feel like a little bit of prayer today. It's obvious that this is a part of their regular routine, but it was important that they went not at 2.30, but at 3 o'clock, because why? There was no need to attend the evening sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice had already taken place. Jesus' blood was already shed. They'd already had atonement for their sins. But it did not mean that they were not to pray any longer. And so they go at 3 o'clock after the evening sacrifices to attend the hour of prayer. Now, uh, I'm going to lay this out there for you because they would, at this time, pray for an hour. And their prayer, some of you are already fidgeting with the thought of an hour of prayer right off the bat. But as you think about what their hour of prayer looked like, uh, we often wonder, how should we pray? What, what should a map or a diagram, if you like diagrams, of prayer look like? Well, here's just an example of what they would do. Uh, for 15 minutes, uh, they would meditate silently on the greatness of God. Now, think about that. 15 minutes. If you've sat through corporate prayer at all, if you have more than 30 seconds of silence, it's awkward, right? Everybody's like, I don't know. Do I speak? Do I not? I'm not sure. It, it's, it's, it's weird to us in this culture to even have silence for this period of time. And yet, they wouldn't just sit there thinking of nothing or contemplating their navel. They instead sat there for 15 minutes thinking about the greatness of God. God, you are so 
great. You are so mighty. You're so powerful in my life. I just want to sit here and just ponder on that. To, to meditate is literally to, to chew on that, to, to feast and feed on the greatness of God. And then, after that 15 minutes, 30 minutes of supplication. And this is the part we like. This is where we come to the Lord with all the things we would like him to do. And so we, we come then with, with supplication or to make petition to God. Lord, here's the ways that I'd love for you to work in my life. Here are the things that, that are bothering me, that, that I need your help, your assistance. And so for 30 minutes, they would offer supplications up to the Lord. And then finally, the final 15 minutes uh, were spent on to reflect on God's goodness in their lives, oftentimes uh, in worship, to just spend 15 minutes at the end to just reflect on the goodness of God. Now, that is at least an idea for prayer if you're wondering how to organize uh, your prayer life. Not saying you're going to start off with an hour, maybe baby steps. Try building this into maybe 10 minutes to begin with. So this is the, what they went for. They attended with consistency uh, this prayer meeting that was taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. And the key for them, and the reason that they were consistent is because these men knew and were taught by Jesus that the root word of disciple is discipline. It's key for us in the Christian life to have discipline built in. And one of the many reasons why it's so very key and critical for us to build consistency into our life. This is the time that I read my Bible. This is the time I'm giving to the Lord uh, prayerfully, consistently, is because uh, the reality is Satan loves to pick us off when we begin to stray. So I know how you guys love the Old Testament. You love to go back to the law. I'm going to take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. As we go back there to Deuteronomy, this is really Moses reflecting upon the time that they spent going through the wilderness. So he's actually going back to Exodus 17, but here in Deuteronomy 25, he gives us insight to what was taking place. As they came across the Red Sea, they came into the wilderness. Through the Sinai, what they found is uh, that the pesky Amalekites came up against them. Oh, I hate those Amalekites, right? They, they come up and they begin to attack the children of Israel. So that's a very famous story that, that uh, Joshua actually engaged in battle against the Amalekites. And as Moses lifted his hands up, they would have great victory over the Amalekites. But as Moses got tired and his hands started to droop, the Amalekites would, would begin to win. And so Moses would lift his hands up and they'd win and then he'd drop his hands back down. Uh, so much so that uh, Moses thankfully had his brother Aaron and his good friend Hur that came alongside him and helped hold Moses' hands up as they would have victory on that day. And so this beautiful picture of people coming alongside to actually assist in the victory that was had as Moses was in a position of surrender. And so the Lord had victory on that day. But in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, this is what Moses recalls back to that time period. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks and all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. And so here's the reality in the Christian life, that where Satan loves to attack is from behind for the stragglers for those that stray away for for those times in our lives where we just can't seem to muster up consistency and, and to dig into God's word to pray this is where he loves to attack and so we see a road map for what Satan wants to do and where's the protection actually found it's found in the body of Christ 
that as we come together, as we rally around one another, New Testament church, as we have an opportunity to come alongside one another, we actually become each other's protection in the hard seasons, in those hard times. And so the, the truth about uh, this Christian life is we're not evergreen trees. We would like to be. We would like to be green all year long, right? We would love to look like an evergreen tree, but the reality is uh, we're deciduous trees. We, we have seasons that we go through. We have a spring and a summer and a fall and a winter. And, and the toughest times are when we come upon those winter seasons. The, the leaves have fallen off. Things look uh, dead. And that becomes the most difficult time to get to church. The most important time to come ends up being the most difficult time to come because we're in the middle of a winter season. And so what we need is we come alongside each other is we need other people who are experiencing a different season. Thankfully, we don't all experience the same seasons at the same time. And so if, if this is you, if you've experienced a winter season in the middle of it, um, this is what you need. You need people to come alongside that are experiencing spring and summer that remind us that here's the good news. Spring is on the way. That, that spring is around the corner. And if we just continue to, to pour into the Lord with consistency and with discipline in our lives, that we can, we can actually be the protection for each other to the rear and to the back and to the sides. And so this is what the Lord desires in our lives. So the first characteristic they had was consistency. Secondly, in verse 2, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And so the second characteristic we find from Peter and John is they had a sensitivity. Now, here they are. They're walking uh, into the temple. They're, they're headed towards the gate called Beautiful. This is also known as the uh, Eastern Gate or the Golden Gate. And it was the most direct access into the temple. So this gate literally opened up into the temple courts in this day. And so the picture on the screen is a picture of this gate still in modern-day Jerusalem. Notice something rather fascinating about this gate, and that is that it's blocked up. Um, the Muslims, because uh, Muslims oftentimes have more faith in our word of God than we do, um, they believed and knew that this is the gate the Messiah was to come triumphantly through, and so what they did was they blocked it up. They're like, look, we believe the Messiah is going to try. We're going to block this bad boy up. That way he can't come in. And then the other thing you see interestingly in this picture is those little white dots. Those are actually tombs. So in Israel, because of their, uh, their geology, they can't dig holes down to bury people. So the tombs sit up on top of the ground. These are the sepulchers we read about in the New Testament. And they would uh, whitewash these because any good Jewish person wouldn't have anything to do with a dead body or with a tomb because it would make them unclean. And so, what do the Muslims do? They put a bunch of dead people in front of the Eastern Gate because they knew the Messiah, he's going to be Jewish. He's not going to want to touch dead bodies. Now, if they would have read a little further, they would know that as Jesus puts his feet upon the Mount of Olives, the mountain is actually going to split in two. And so all this that they did, it's not going to do a whole lot to stop the Messiah from walking triumphantly onto his throne. And yet, this is the reason why it's blocked up and they put dead people in front of it. Now, all that aside, what we find is Peter and John are walking into this gate called Beautiful, 
And this paralyzed man was placed here intentionally. Why? Because they're headed into church. And what are they bringing with them as they go into church? But they got money in their pocket. They're like the Georgia satellites. They got a little change in their pocket going jingalangalang. They got a little change in their pocket. So these guys know that if you put up paralyzed person, there might be someone that would come along and feel bad for them, have sympathy. So this is a perfect spot if you're looking to beg for money. And so that's the reason this man is positioned in this place. And so for Peter and John, they're walking along. They're headed towards this prayer meeting. And instead of just walking by, they were sensitive to his situation. Verse 4, what we see is, and they fixed their eyes on him. That doesn't mean they gave him a passing glance, but literally fixed their eyes. Uh, The word fixed could also mean a focused or to comprehend or to establish meaning. So when you think about this man who's there outside the city gates, um, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to have been paralyzed from birth when the last time anybody actually gave him a real look, actually gave him enough time to stop and gaze upon him, to give him a true opportunity to just interact. That, that if you come across someone that has uh, been struggling with a handicap, what you'll find is that without exception, wear their eyes to the ground. They have, been, uh, they have felt this way for so long in their life that they can't even bring themselves to lift their eyes to make con- eye contact with another human. And so this is probably very much the position this man was in, that it had been years since anyone had given him a true look, a meaningful look in the eye. And so the reality is what Peter and John knew is that this man had far more value than silver and gold. This was a human being. And so they make this kind of eye contact with him. And we see the value that exists in eye contact. And so I ask, uh, how often do we actually make eye contact with one another, right? Isn't it amazing as our culture goes and we're so educated and we're so intelligent how little we actually make eye contact? And the most, uh, the biggest reason why, at least for me, I'm going to speak to myself in this spot, is because I'm staring at my flipping phone all the time. That phone, the idle phone, right there in my face. Half the time I can't even remember what I picked it up for. I get to look and next thing you know, I'm on Amazon or Facebook. I don't know why. What was I even doing at this moment? And minutes go by, hours go by, and we, we spend all this time looking down and never spend any time looking up. And then we're amazed at why God doesn't work in our lives. Why am I not sensitive to situations? Well, it's because he's staring at my phone. Now, that's not to say that the phones don't provide a tremendous value. Truly, as a bivocational pastor, I couldn't do what I do without uh, an idle phone. Uh, It's so quick to look things up and to check on things and interact with people. But, But there comes a time where I need to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is up to. And there comes a time where we need to actually sit and talk with one another. I mean, when, when I was a younger man, before the idle phone, when I would travel in an airport, what, what I found is people would actually sit, never knowing one another, on an airplane or, or in the terminal waiting on a flight, and they would have what's known as a conversation. Right, I know, it's so weird. They would actually talk to one another. Perfect strangers would get to know each other, and now what you see, if you, if you travel at all, is people looking down. No one bothered to actually look up and fix their eyes upon one another. And so, 
I would ask you, I would encourage you to ask, Lord, who would you have me fix my eyes upon today to look at in the eye? The second thing we see for Peter and John, and it's, it, I'm going to uh, go there, but it's not specifically mentioned in the verse, but I think you, you'll see where I'm headed in just a second, is they, they fixed their eyes upon uh, this man, and they said, look at us. That I see is that they actually possessed flexibility. On top of uh, sensitivity, they were also flexible. And what I mean is, here's Peter and John. They're headed into a prayer meeting, and they stop what they're doing, and they turn to this man, and they fix their eyes upon him. Th- this word indicates it wasn't just for a second. This was a long stare. Like, they stopped completely what they were doing. And, and the reality is, they were headed to a prayer meeting. Do you understand? They were headed to church. They were probably leading the prayer meeting. Don't you know I've got things to do? I've got places to be. This is how we so often are, right? When, when Jesus actually wants to divinely interrupt us, that, that we get in our mind so determined where we're to head that don't you know I got Jesus stuff? But he wants us to be flexible with our time. That, that the reality is we can get so caught up with what we think we're supposed to do for the Lord, we completely miss the thing he actually wants us to do. We miss the divine interruption. But I know what you're thinking. The first point was all about consistency. Don't we have to be consistent? But the reality is, if it wasn't for their consistency, they wouldn't have been able to have the divine interruption, you see. They would have never been headed for their consistent, regular prayer meeting. The thing they did every day for Jesus, not been about that, they wouldn't have been able to have this divine interruption take place. And so the guy that sits next to me at work in the office next door, he loves to say this, and I like to steal things from other people and pretend like they're my own. So I'm going to do that in this case too. He always tells people, don't let good get in the way of better. And oftentimes I think that's us, that we've got a good thing in mind. I'm going to head and do something for the Lord, but what he's got in mind is actually something better. And if we're not careful, we get so determined to stay on our routine and our schedule that we can let good get in the way of better, which might be a divine conversation or a divine interruption. And so the other bullet point I put up here for you is that oftentimes God uses the practical so that the spiritual can happen. That the practical things that we go about in our day can oftentimes be the mechanism he uses so the spiritual thing can actually take place. Now, the founder of Calvary Chapel, uh, somebody that I love to listen to, uh, he passed away almost a decade ago, but uh, he was Chuck Smith, and he had this a saying that he would tell people in his big, deep, booming voice. He would say, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And I love that. Because blessed are the flexible, before, because they shall not be broken. And so often what we find is when we get rigid in our rules and our regulation, our tradition, oftentimes the tradition put upon us by church, that we get so rigid in these things that when God makes a move and when he allows a divine interruption to take place in our lives, what happens is we get broken in the process. Like, Lord, surely not this thing. I mean, I was doing so good, doing my thing, doing my routine. Surely this isn't the curveball. But blessed are the flexible. Be flexible as you allow sensitivity to take place in your life, and then you won't be broken. Instead, you'll actually be blessed. 
Now, continuing in verse 5, And so he gave them his attention, the paralyzed man, expecting to receive something from them. In verse 6, And then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. In verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so what we find is this next characteristic that these men exhibit is authority. They had a consistency in their life. They had a sensitivity to God's word. They were willing to be flexible, and now they're able to actually exhibit authority in this situation. But how is it that Peter speaks with this kind of authority? I mean, this is a risky move here for Peter. I mean, you can imagine, if you take somebody by the hand and you say, in the name of Jesus, walk, here's the deal. If he doesn't rise and walk, it's going to be ugly for everybody. It's going to be a little bit of an embarrassing moment outside the temple gates. But he had authority for two reasons. He had the right timing, and he did it in the power of Jesus. That's important for us to grasp, is that if we're to have authority in people's lives, it must be in the right timing. Because the truth is that we do not have authority in every situation. There are situations that you're going to come across where you do not have authority because your timing is out of whack. You don't have the right timing whatsoever. And think about this story, right? This is the gate that you use to enter into the temple over and over again. This is the main entrance. The same entrance that one Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, would have walked into time and time and time again as he entered into the temple. You know, this man was positioned there from his birth, it said. He was lame from birth, which tells us for years he was set outside this gate. That tells us that this same Jesus, the Messiah, walked right past this man. Think about that. D- did Jesus not have the power? Did he not have the ability to heal this man? I mean, he clearly did. He, he was God in the flesh. He had the ability. And yet what he knew better than any is that it was not the right time. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, especially as we deal with struggles and sicknesses and people around us that are hurting, and we wonder, God, why don't you fix this thing? Why do you delay in this area? And what we realize as you go through Scripture and as we learn together is that God is all about getting the most good for the most people. It's not always in our timing. It is always in his timing. Now, oftentimes, he's waiting for the person that we're praying for to have the right heart position. He, unfortunately, because of our human condition, we have to be many times brought right back down to our knees. And he's waiting for that, waiting for full surrender from people. But he is always about getting the most good for the most people. And to lay that out scripturally, I'm going to go to Galatians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is here speaking to the church in this Galatia region. And he says in Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How many of you are thankful for his timing now? (laughs) Right? 
the fullness of time had to be complete before he would send Jesus to do the very thing that he knew he was going to have to do from the foundation of the earth. Revelation says that he was a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. But it had to be the right timing so that you and I could actually be sons and daughters of God. We become very thankful for his timing. We realize he is all about getting the most good for the most people, even if it's at his expense. Now, on top of having uh, the right timing, what Peter and John also possessed in this is they operated under the power of the name of Jesus. Do you realize that there's power in that name? There is power in the name of Jesus. If you don't believe me, um, just have a conversation with people about religion and faith. And what you'll find is they are totally cool with you talking about faith. They are totally cool with you talking about spirituality. You can even say God in a conversation and nobody uh, gets stirred up. But you just drop the J-bomb in the middle of that thing and watch how they squirm. Say the name of Jesus in the middle of the conversation. you got to say it like a Southern Baptist pastor too. you got to say Jesus like that. Just watch how they they're like, oh, what that guy's talking about. I had a situation this week where I was talking to a guy in this meeting, and he said, he said to me, so how exactly uh, did you wind up here in this place? And I just looked at him, and I said, well, it's pretty easy. Jesus. And it was like, whew. It was like somebody just passed gas in the conversation. He's like, what in the world just took place? Right? But, but immediately, I was able to know where he stood, too. And he was actually a believer. He was very encouraged by this. And that's what you'll find as you speak the name of Jesus into conversations with people, you will immediately know where they stand. They're either going to get the willies, and they're going to try to figure out how to get out of that conversation, or they're going to be encouraged, and you're going to be able to come alongside them and, and edify them. It will change the course of the conversation when you use the name of Jesus. And, and here's the next point. If you're going to talk about your faith, and you're not going to use the name of Jesus, what you're going to find is it's powerless. Your conversation, what you're hoping to get out of that, is going to lack power. It's going to lack authority because you did not speak the name of Jesus. And so speak the name because there is power in the name of Jesus. That's what we find here. Now then, verse 8. And so he leaped, so he, this is the paralyzed man, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And this about this man, that he was paralyzed from birth, which means, guess what? He was not able to go into the temple. How's he going to get there? He can't even walk. He can scooch along. He needs people to even leave him outside the gates. So now he's able to actually come into fellowship with God because of this healing. And he praises God in verse 8. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate at the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. In verse 11, and now is the lame man who is healed held on to Peter and John. I love that. He held on to Peter and John. All the people ran together to them on the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Peter knew immediately he needed to operate in humility. That it wasn't him, it wasn't John who caused this, but instead it was 
It was the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus working on our behalf. In verse 16, next week we'll look at this. He was quick to point the attention back to Jesus. And here's what we need to know, is that humility is a key in the Christian life. Like consistency and discipline, so is humility. Because the reality about this man is uh, this man, this paralyzed man, he is us. This is us. We, each of us, are paralyzed from our mother's womb. Uh, Luke uses a terminology because he's a doctor that this man's ankle bones were literally out of joint. He was not able to stand because they were uh, displaced. This is us in our spiritual condition. This is our, our nature. Because of how we came into the world, we were born descendants from Adam. We received a sin nature that was given to us by him. Thank you, Adam, for that. We appreciate it. But, but the reality of it is, is we have a sin nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's what we do. We, we're good at it too, right? And so uh, oftentimes you'll hear somebody say this, don't blame me, I was born this way. And the reality is, that's true. <laughs> you were born this way. The thing is, you don't have to stay that way. Romans chapter 12 the Apostle Paul addresses this as well. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That we are not called to be conformed to this world, to actually fit into the mold that the world wants, but instead called to be transformed. You'll hear people oftentimes say, I just want restoration. I just want restoration in my life. I got to tell you, folks, you don't want to be restored. You don't want to be restored right back to that same sinful state. You were born paralyzed. What you need is transformation. We need a complete and total mind change, heart change, rebirth. Ye must be born again. Why did Jesus say that? Because the first time you were born paralyzed. That's why we have to be born again and so the lame man this miracle and many of us will say look i've never seen a lame man actually been made to walk again i've never seen this kind of miracle take place and i tell you look around look around this room what you'll find is person after person who was paralyzed who can now walk and walk triumphantly into worship god that prior to this, just like this lame man who wasn't able to enter into the temple to worship, neither were you. You were not able to come into fellowship with God until you had the transformative power of Jesus actually make you able to. And so this is, the, this is ultimately what we're finding taking place in this miracle. But oftentimes, as we see these things happen, what then immediately happens in our hearts is we get puffed up. We get proud. Maybe maybe I had a little bit to do with it. I mean, Jesus did a good work in me, but I feel like I'm doing pretty good here. I mean, I got a lot going on, Lord. Don't you see all the good works that are taking place? And so this is exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. As Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians, a very successful, wealthy part of the world, right? They were on a major trade route. They had commerce taking place. Uh, you could maybe even say they're like, First Coles Countyans. 
Okay, we want to do first Clark Countyans. We'll maybe do that for you. They were successful people. They were doing all right, and so so much so they even argued about who is their favorite Bible teacher. Right? Some said we like Paul. Oh, we just love Paul. And others said, oh, we like Apollos. He's our favorite teacher. And then some said, we like Cephas. He's, that's Peter. We like him. He's our favorite. And then the super religious folks, they said, we just love Jesus. We don't care about that. We love Jesus. And so they would have these arguments about who was the best. So the Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? You indeed receive it. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? So what Paul is saying here is, what do you think has taken place in you that you have any room to brag? The only good thing that's happened in you is Christ Jesus transforming you from the inside out. And guess what? He gave you the faith to do it. He then gave you uh, his blood to protect you. And then he raised you up from the dead so that you could be a son of God. You know how much of that you did? None of it, other than you surrendered your heart. That was it. Just simply the admission that we were nothing, this admission that we were humble, admission that we're paralyzed. That's the spot to stay in. Lord, you found me and I was paralyzed, and every single thing I have is because of you. Thank you, Lord. And so this is the spot to stay in in the Christian life, to stay humble. Now, lastly, what we see here in verse 13 is Peter says, The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, and he was determined to let him go. And so what Peter does here, and it's important for us to understand, is that as we act by the Holy Spirit, as we act with consistency, as we act with sensitivity and flexibility and authority and, and even in humility, it's important to know that the glory all needs to go to Jesus, that we are not called to take any of the glory upon ourselves. Now, does it mean that you can't live out a life that has some of these same characteristics and not be a believer? You most certainly can. But how you know that the Holy Spirit is acting in your life is that the glory will actually go, as Peter says, to Jesus Christ. All glory to God. And so every miracle we see take place in Acts from here on out, Jesus, the Christ, gets all the glory for it. Now, what do we do then with compliments, right? Because the next thought is, if we're not careful, we're going to go all the way to this other side and go, well, I want to be careful I don't compliment people too much, lest they get puffed up. I don't want people to get too, you know, built up, too big of a head. I might cause somebody to sin by being too complimentary. Well, Mark Twain says this, and, and while it's not in the Bible, I like Mark Twain. He says that I can live two months on a good compliment. I think it's important as we act and operate as a church that we should encourage one another liberally. We should feel free to come alongside each other and provide encouragement, to, to build one another up. Now, as you receive encouragement from one another, here's the way we're to receive those compliments. We're to receive them graciously. Don't turn down a compliment. Don't deflect but instead to receive it graciously. What is grace? Grace is not getting what I or getting what I do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. That's hell and death. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. That's eternity in heaven. 
And so grace is receiving what I don't deserve. And so as we receive compliments graciously, who do we deflect to? But Jesus. As people come alongside and they want to give compliments, be quick to say thank you. But here's the thing. If it wasn't for Christ working in my life, none of this would be possible. This is all Jesus at work is what you see right here. Any good thing that's done in my life is because of him. Because I, I got to tell you, you guys are way more holy than me, but I'm about two to three bad decisions at any given time from falling completely off the rails. I mean, but by the grace of God, there go I. Right? I think more of us operate in that realm than, than we probably care to admit. That, that for each of us, we've got this condition that Christ is transforming us from the inside out, and yet it's this constant battle. And so as we receive compliments, understand to direct all that back to him where all glory is actually due. So receive compliments graciously. And then thirdly, to stay humble regularly. That we are called to be a people that are humble. We're called to actually humble ourselves, lest we get humbled by God. And what James says, chapter 4, He says in James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So as you allow humility to take place in your life, what you'll find is God actually is the one that will come alongside and he will lift you up. He will exalt those who are willing to be humbled. Now, how then do we operate in humility? Last place in scripture I'll go is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Esteeming one another, considering each other, putting other people ahead of ourselves. That's how we stay in a spot of humility. Always putting others above ourselves. And so I would encourage you to consider others bountifully. To consider others ahead of yourself continuously with excitement and with zeal. As we do that, as we grow in this as a church, what we'll find is that those front doors right there, they're going to be like the beautiful gate. They're going to be people that are paralyzed, that were afraid to come in here. They're going to actually receive the strength in their ankles and in their feet. And they're going to be able to come in here and receive the transformative word of God in their lives. And it's all going to be because Jesus, though, because he made it so. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for working in our lives and giving us the ability to operate with consistency and sensitivity and with flexibility. And, Lord, with authority, thank you for that. And thank you so much for humility. Uh, oftentimes I've heard it not to pray for humility. Don't pray for patience. All these things. But we know you're a good father, Lord, that you will give us only good gifts. And so we thank you for keeping us humble. Lord, help us to be a people that are willing to serve one another, to, to come alongside and to take opportunities like we get with Miss Dawn here in just a couple weeks and get to just serve the community, serve each other, knowing that as we do this, we get to actually be the body of Christ at work. And thank you, Lord, most of all, for saving us from a paralyzed state where we had no ability to have any strength at all of our own and yet you took us by the hand, and you led us into worship. And so, Lord, as we take this time, this opportunity, just to worship you, I want to just thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for what you're up to in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, would you please stand?
Woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble now. Thought, how we ever get so far down? How's it ever gonna turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. Said, God, why don't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. Thought disgusted me, so I shook my fist in heaven. Said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I created you. If not us, then who? If not me? If not now, then when will we see it in all this pain? It's not enough to do nothing. It's time for us to do something. Well, I'm so tired about talking about how we are God's hands and feet. Well, it's easier to say than to be. Live like angels of apathy who tell ourselves it's all right. Somebody else will do something. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of life with no desire. I don't want to flame. I want to fire, and I want to be the one who says, hey, I'm gonna do something. If not us, then who? If not me and you right now, it's time for us to do something. If not now, then when will we It's time for us to do something. We are the salt of the earth. We are a city on a hill. Never gonna change the world by standing still. No, we won't stand still. No, we won't stand still. If not us, then who? If not me, then you right now. It's time for us to do something. If not now, then when will we see it in all this pain? Not enough to do nothing. It's time for us to do something. It's time for us to do something. And the church says, Amen. 
All right, thank you guys so much for coming out this morning. I uh, really appreciate it. If you need prayer for anything at all, I'd be happy to stick around. Love the opportunity to pray for you. I uh, do want to encourage you as you pray for God to show you the right timing in situations. I think about Jesus walking a past, oh man, all those times and how he must have had a smile on his face because he knew that the right time was coming for that guy. And so if you've prayed for people in your lives uh, over and over again, I want to encourage you, continue to pray for them uh, because the Father's got a smile on his face. He knows there's going to come a time and a place and an opportunity uh, for them uh, just like it did for that man today. God bless you guys. Have a great week.